Small Business Focus on The Money Show. Well, Pablo's on holiday, so we got to thinking how best we could inspire you and your small business at the start of 2014. Every single business in the world, Bill Gates' business, Facebook, Twitter, all of these businesses started small. Started in a garage, started in somebody's back room. That's how they all started. So we've taken extracts from three of our most inspiring interviews from last year from guys who started small. The first... Stephen Saad, a guy I'm told who chooses to fly Kalula.com from Joburg to Durban where he lives and works. He could afford something private, something much more comfortable, but he chooses to fly Kalula.com. He's a nice bloke. He also happens to be the chief executive of Aspen Pharmacare. We started our discussion last year with Stephen Saad from Aspen, asking about how his career began as an accountant. I was actually in an auditing firm and one of the clients came in and said they make lots of money, but they don't make any cash. And I gave them the standard answers around working capital. Anyway, when I was seconded into the business, I actually realized that something was very wrong and I actually went out and started selling and talking to people. And I actually, it was the best thing, talking to the doctors, talking to the client base, and I was much more comfortable in that role, quite frankly. Um, and and that's, that was how it started. You became chief executive of the business <laughs> and, and, the, and the rest is history. What's the biggest risk you've taken over the last 15 years? You talked to somebody like Kevin Hedewick and he was running the little steers business that was owned by the Halamandres family and he went and spent twice the market cap of steers to buy Wimpy, which changed the fate of, of famous brands completely. What is yours? You know, people have, you know, people have looked at the transactions we've done over the time to say, well, this was a huge risk or this was a huge risk. I mean, they said when we bought Sigma in Australia, they said that was a huge risk to take in Australia. But, you know, we really had our full manufacturing base down. I knew what we could move into South Africa. We did it exactly as we wanted to do the due diligence and we had sales and marketing. I would think the biggest risk that we took in retrospect was the acquisition of South African Drakers because it was a lot more than twice our size. We were a very small business. I remember the analyst saying, "You, it's the you know the mouse swallowing the elephant and you know what happens to the mouse. It gets a bit of indigestion. So it was, that was probably the biggest risk uh, if you have to look back on time. At the time, I never thought it was a risk because I'd traded so much in the South African Drakers products and knew their value. So I think, you know, we took on a tremendous amount of debt and we were supposed to issue equity at four rand or six rand. Um, and we actually, no one took the equity. They said, well, you guys are, where are you from? Are you from Durban? <laughs> no, there's no businesses in Durban. You might grow a bit of sugar cane. But, uh, and, and so we, we didn't have any, any subscriptions for the shares. So we had all the debt on our balance sheet. Other than that, I mean, is there really a, a, a downside to doing business out of Durban other than the fact that it's always warm and the air is fresh and, it's ni- and the sea is warm? I love Durban. Durban's are just a, it's yeah. nice. And what we've got now is we've got Americans and Palestinians and we've got people from all around the globe sitting in Durban. So we've been very good for the Durban economy. What percentage of Aspen's revenues are now South African-based revenues? Because this, build, this business is globalized. It's, it's less than 40%. 10, 10 I think it's about 35% or so, 33% okay. or 37%. 37% of the about profits. Yeah, about a third, and with the the transactions to come, there's going to be, it'll probably be less than 25, but we have invested heavily in our manufacturers, so we're one of the few companies, I mean, there's, if you talk about exports, I heard you talking about exports earlier, we, you know, most people take our, our mining stuff and, and and then send it back to us in, in the form yeah. of, or in, in process form. We're one of the few guys who take who take uh, raw materials and 
from and process them here. So we take a high tech industry and we export them. Now we're selling three million units, two two and a half to three million units a month of eye drops into the US market. Um, so whenever I, when I'm in sort of I was in Disneyland with my kids and you see an eye drop and it says made in Port Elizabeth in a Walgreens <laughs> pharmacy, I have this big smile on my face. I reckon I'm the only person in all of America who knows where this is made. <laughs> who cares? Who, who but uh, you know that's yeah. it. So we we've got a very big export model. You know that it's something we've sort of been very passionate about. We believe in the South African economy and we believe that you can manufacture anything here with the right will. Um, okay, now GlaxoSmithKline, how much of them, do, how much of you do they own now? Uh, it's somewhere between 18 and 19%. Okay, and that's got to grow, I would think, because every time you do a deal with them and you do a lot of deals with them, you take uh, some of their high-flying 1980s and 1990s drugs mm-hmm. and you start generically manufacturing them and they basically take an ever-increasing mm-hmm. stake in you. No, we, the stake that they got, the only time we ever issued equity and gave them a stake in Aspen was when they reversed their South African and African businesses okay. into Aspen because the logic was they did not want to divest out of Africa, but they thought we would do a better job than them. All the subsequent deals, like these ones for products, etc., have been done on the basis of debt financing, and that would have been done on debt as well, um, but for the fact that they really wanted – their holding in Aspen was a commitment to Africa. Are you looking to take on more debt? Because I saw a comment today saying that you're at your self-imposed debt ceiling. <laughs> How do you grow without taking on more debt? From well, we've story? you know the debt our, our debt in our books sits at eleven billion rand, and by the time we finished our, our raising of debt here, we'll get to we're trying to get to three point four billion dollars. So it sounds better than thirty four billion rand. It was just comes mm, a very big number, but sure. <laughs> the, you know the, uh, us, we, we've got limits. You know EBIT to EBIT dollar ratios to debt, and you know how much interest covered, how times the interest must be covered, and we've got covenancy of five times internally. And at 34 billion rand, we've got quite a lot to settle down because what we've got are two massive, well, three massive deals, uh, which we'll settle down and will certainly drive significant growth in the Aspen business over the next couple of years. There's really big growth coming in Aspen and a lot of cash flow. So the debt unwinds very quickly and nobody wanted us to take on equity. None yeah. of us take on equity. So. What do you make of CFR, the Chilean family-owned business, taking, uh, to taking over 100% of Adcock Ingram? It looks like it's going to be a done deal pretty soon. Um, I don't know enough about CFR to comment. It looks like it's something that's been born of, of sort of businesses put together by venture capitalists. But, you know, the Adcock's a good business. So I think that... Uh, you know, Adcock have got a reliable business in pharmaceutical terms. They've got a lot of OTC brands that, you know, manage well, will drive good cash flow. So I think it's a very solid business from, you know, driving cash flows. It's not, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, drop by 50%. It's not subject to commodities. So I think CFR, you know, will be acquiring a good business. And, you know. ten, 10 years from now, what does Aspen look like? So 10 years from now, so I can, let me talk to you two years first. So two years now, we're getting another 450 reps in these deals. Uh, we'll have 30 more local operating companies set up. So we have, we're going to have reps in Russia, reps in Slovenia, Hungary, Bulgaria. We've got them all around France. <laughs> um, and I'm hoping over the next years to really build something in Japan. So big focus on, on Asia, Japan. And, you know, we've got the infant milk formulas and there's a big market in China that we're hoping to get into next year as well. So I, I would hope that Aspen has, uh, you know, we've got we've now got a global presence at the end of all of this. Uh, I would hope that we've increased our global presence. And, you know, Latin America, Asia, probably are, you know, bigger than, you know, Australia, mm-hmm. South Africa. It's, uh, they've got more people. You're, you're 49 years old. You're, you're a baby in the corporate world. Oh. You are one of the richest people in Africa as a mm. result of the success of Aspen Pharmacare, something that mm. you have driven. Mm. Is this something you keep doing? You know, riches is something, and, and 
I know lots of people store store their values by material wealth. For me, it's not really about that. For me, it's about you know happiness. If you tell me I'm the, one of the top twenty happy pe- happiest people in Africa, then I'm then you it's fine. You're pretty relaxed, yeah. You know, I'm pretty relaxed and I'm pretty happy, and that's I think is where I'm going to get you in my discussion with you to say to you that I'm really happy with everything we've done. I love being at Aspen. It's a it's a great company to be with. They're fantastic people to work with, and they feel very passionate. And you know, the big thing about Aspen is that you feel like you're making a real contribution. So when government roll the ARV program out now, and everyone wins a tender, and you win X, and you're supplying two and a half X because they don't supply, and now they want to scale it up to two and a half million three and ones, and you're supposed to split it three ways, and actually now you're getting 60%, you're getting two thirds. It makes you feel good that you can contribute to, to healthcare, uh, particularly in the markets we're in. There's, there's value to be, there's value to be at. So it's a it's a great space to be in, and it's a, you know it's, you can look in the mirror and be comfortable each morning. Stephen Saad, chief executive of Aspen Pharmacare, another entrepreneur we spoke to last year, Hassan Adams, left into South Africa's popular radar when he opened the first Burger King in South Africa. The owners have been looking to enter South Africa. Hassan Adams says he got chatting to them while watching horse racing in Dubai, and the rest now is burger history. It's, he was also talking to us about how he started Grand Parade Investments. We began by talking about his days growing up in District 6. I was... Uh, um born in District 6, forcibly removed in 1960. And uh, my dad was a barman, uh, also uh, forcibly removed from his job because he inherited a piece of the cafe royal. And those years, um, non-whites weren't allowed to own property in the city. But nevertheless, I fought my way through uh, fighting for my education. He insisted on that. And it's a long story, and I think that it will take up the whole... Um, we have time. We have time. Uh, no, no, look, I mean, <laughs> I, I come from a very normal background. I love the people um, that I grew up with. My mother was a great person. My father was my mentor. And um, I uh, can only say that I've learned how to be a street fighter by selling Argus in Hanover Street in, in District <laughs> 6 at a very young and tender age. How old were you? I was about probably eight years old, sure. ten years old. Uh, and the reason for selling Argus was that, um, you know, during those years, we, we were forcibly removed from yeah. District 6. I stayed, we stayed in a little road called St. Philip Street. And eventually we were moving to my aunt's little two-bedroom house. And uh, the only place that my brother and I could sleep was in the passage. And those years you had those fold-up beds on wheels. And my father being a barman, we couldn't go to bed until after 12, you know. Because so he would have to get in through the front door. So, no so August in the meantime, yeah, it was great fun, though. No, I mean, yeah. and, and you learned some valuable lessons, no doubt, in those absolutely, days. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, when you, when you look at the days in District 6 and being removed in 1960 and one drives through uh, Cape Town and you drive along the highway and you look at that landscape, that derelict landscape of, of what was District 6, what is still District 6, I suppose, uh, and, and just the complexity of what is left behind there and this desire to repopulate a very valuable piece of real estate. Are you involved in that process at all, trying to reclaim what is rightfully yours? Yeah, look, uh, we have a, 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 we, I'm one of the claimants and obviously not for myself though uh, I'd like to give it to my sister who uh, is a single parent and uh, she would appreciate it a lot more than what I do and all it, I'd like to do is re-establish our legacy there, mm. that's why I would like her to go back there but you know it's a holy piece of land and as you know quite a contentious um, um, piece of land 
But I think that the people who are working behind the scenes there are doing a lot to make it happen, and I salute them. Is, is there a time frame on it? I mean, one looks at it, when I've looked at it for the last 30 years, uh, visiting Cape Town, and you just go, oh, this is just, yeah, it, it's so tragic on so many levels that even now, 30, you know, it's now 50 years later, um, after after the place was was forcibly evacuated. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, generations have died since then. And, and we want, you want to restore it, don't you? Look, I think that you've got to understand that, uh, you know, certain people have a certain loci standard there. And it's difficult to prove that to um, many of the new generation who's springing up. And there's only one place for one family. So you've got to admire these guys for dealing with it in a pretty open way and a pretty transparent way. There are some guys like uh, Nagia and so on who spent virtually all their life dealing with the District 6 issues. So, as I said, you know, I salute them. I just hope we can get it back to normal. I don't think it will ever be the same. But nevertheless, you know, it will prove a point that, you know, these forced removals were not welcome and Mm. the reestablishment of the um, social fabric in the area is probably more important than just houses. You know, we want homes in the area so that people can start to live together and make a meaningful contribution towards the economy in the Western Cape. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go. You 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 cast out of your home. You live in your aunt's home. You're sleeping in the passage. It's the only place to sleep. Your dad's the barman. You're going out. You're selling Argus newspapers. Your dad impresses upon you the importance of education, and you go and study engineering. What kind of engineering? Yeah, look, I'm a, a, a civil and structural engineer by profession. I'm still the chairman of a very fair size consulting engineering practice called Nadison's Consulting. It used to be called Ash. We've changed it because the partnership split up. And today we still do some seriously iconic um, structures and, and road transportation jobs. I mean, we involve in the tallest building in Cape Town right now called Portside. Mm-hmm. And I still give my bit of design review input there, although, you know, my... My time is now focused on creating new opportunities in Grand Parade Investments, which has grown from nothing to a huge company. Where, where did the first seed capital for, for GPI, for Grand Parade Investments, come from? I'm assuming that the link to Grand Parade, is it a 1994 link? Is it Nelson Mandela being released from prison and going on the Grand Parade and making that first speech? It's an assumption of mine. Well, you know, uh, something like that. But let me just tell you, coming from District 6... <coughs> The Grand Parade was a place of convergence for all of our communities. And I was standing on the 23rd floor of the old Safmarine House with Sun International and we were discussing, you know, how we would be the empowerment partner. I insisted that we must go out to the broader communities and get them all involved. And standing on the 23rd floor, I looked down onto the City Hall and obviously that is the, the iconic building which which defines the Grand Parade where Nelson Mandela made his first speech and hence the name Grand Parade Investments you know most of our communities come from originally from District 6 and they were moved into uh, a lot of the suburbs and townships where they are now so if you look at our shareholder base it's very big it's probably about 14,000 shareholders now and mainly from the Cape Flats and areas where they were moved into from District 6.
Um, and, and so you, the, the startup capital then came from these from these shareholders who, yeah. who who trusted you in the same way as I suppose people in Stellenbosch trusted uh, Anton Rupert in the 1930s and, and gave him a couple of hundred pounds or whatever it was at the time. Uh, bright young man with, with with bright prospects. Yeah, we'll trust you. And, and a lot of Stellenbosch made their money out of Anton Rupert. Um, a lot of these families hopefully will be better off as a result of their trust in you. Yeah, look, you know, I can't take all the credit. You know, uh, we were uh, four guys putting this whole thing together with a couple of consortiums. Myself, the late Peter Swartz, Ragimund Sammy was part of it, and also Ralph Fries was a dear friend of mine too. And we decided to go and um, to various communities throughout the whole Western Cape on forms like political platforms, telling them that here's an opportunity for them to invest in a company. We hope to have a big future with this company. And so they believed in us and they put their retrenchment packages, they borrowed on their bonds. They, I promise you some people came as far uh, from, uh, feel from Blue Downs and all of these areas putting six to 700 rand, you know, to invest in GPI. And we raised 28 million rand at the time and we thought, wow. I mean, we, how do we manage that? Little did we know the next month we had to pay the cash drawdown to take up further options of another 28 million and that's when the trouble started because we went to the banks and we couldn't get any money uh, and I must just say that at that time we created a broad-based economic empowerment vehicle without the name broad-based even being yeah. known to people. No, precisely. I mean, you were 10 years ahead of your time. Yeah, and we, we went to the banks and they wouldn't give us money. Eventually, we got a PREF at 35% interest. It was so punitive that it nearly made us bankrupt to the stage where I took over and I went to go and see Sun International and I begged them to take me out of their basket and lend it to us at reasonable rates. They did that. Obviously, there were there was costs to that, which we gladly accepted. And today, you know, we look back and I say to myself, how did we do that? From a 28 million rand company, we're now a multi-billion rand company. And we've paid back our shareholders their 28 million rand, probably 20 or 30 times already. And their investment of 17 and a half cents is now worth a lot more. You know, yeah. it's worth billions. Hassan Adams, the chairman of Grand Parade Investments. Finally, tonight, he told his story in the marvellous biography, and then they fired me. He wasn't yet 50, but Yanni Mouton found himself booted out of the partnership he'd helped create, SMK. So he went off, gazed at his navel for a while, thought about things, and then decided he had to think about the future. He has Yanni Mouton from 2013. I think I'm... Uh fortunate man to have a company that I enjoy working. I enjoy the company. It's my hobby. It's my passion. And it's even uh, great that there's a lot of family and friends involved as well. Now, family businesses has been a strong theme going through the show this evening. I uh, just heard that. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, what is it about the, the, you're a listed company, um, you're a publicly listed company, but there are, you've, you've, you've you're big on loyalty. You're big on friendships. You reward friendships. You trust people close to you. Um, I, 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 I'm sort of reading between the lines of, of, of your book. What is it about that that has made PSG successful? I think after a while you realize how important friends and family are. For me, it's very important, friends and family. And it's a privilege if you can sort of, in a way, do that in your life. 
something that you like PSG with friends and family. Now, some of those friends come from your come from your days at SMK. A lot of them is with uh, us today. Now, just for for people who haven't read the book mm. who don't know the story, mm. um, and I'm sure you've told it more times than you care to remember. But it was a was it a winter's day, Joburg, 1995. You drive into the yes. office and there's a strange atmosphere in the office. What happened next? Yes. Okay. Um, I think. The story is that we were 20 partners. We were a successful company. And uh, I was a CEO. And then uh, uh, this tremendous surprise. And for sure, you you out. I had to pack my things and go home. It's as easy as that. Uh, you, you, and it changed your life to a certain extent. Well, it changed your life fundamentally. Mm. It changed your life completely. You had this very successful stock mm. brokerage 20 years ago called SMK. Um, your, your late wife, Donna, though, was, was very straight with you. And she said to you, Yanni, you know, 20 partners at SMK, it's a clever company. They can't be wrong. That's absolutely true. <laughs> and and, and it, it forced uh, you to... She actually told me, there must be something wrong with you as well. And, and and perhaps that forced a little bit of introspection. Is is mm. the Yanni Mouton of 2013 a very different Yanni Mouton of, uh, to the Yanni Mouton of 1995? I think, number one, I've arranged my things that they can't be fired. <laughs> 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 I've learned that, that lesson. And uh, I realize I'm still sometimes a bit hard with people. And then who feel bad afterwards? Myself. Going home, mm. I think about, El, was that the right way of putting it? Can't I be a bit softer? But uh, I think the people understand me a bit better as well. Mm, but it is it is interesting how in the, the 21st century the management has changed quite a lot over, over time um, and the, the, the school of hard knocks is, is not one that everybody can take but you've had mm. a lot of the people you worked with at SMK in those days uh, because SMK ultimately now is I think Nedbank that's within right, within yeah. the NetBank group, is 100% it? 100% right. It eventually ended there, yeah. Okay, so and a lot of those people would have moved on, and many of those have then come mm. into, into PSG, uh, into the stockbroking business, and that's into many right, other yeah. parts of it. Mm. And at the end of the day, I think what happened 17 years ago is not part of the past. Mm. And we don't want to talk about it, and we want to go on with our lives, be friends again, and, you know... Some of their children is working for us, and it's wonderful. It's it's wonderful mm. how full so how the wheel how round mm. the wheel is. But you you go into your study at your house in Northcliffe, and you you spend a year or two thinking about things, and uh, you talk about family and friends. And your children are are tough. They the, your children were also quite instrumental in making you rethink your life. And one of your sons came into the room one day and said, "Dad, what are you doing? Come on, what's up?" Yeah, it was actually interesting because he asked me, what am I doing? What am I doing to keep me busy? And I said to him, yeah, I found this stock exchange to see what the prices are doing but before the Internet and things like that. And I, he said to me, yes, see, Father, but that can't keep a man like you busy all day. And it is a fact of life. You have to lift your head, look at the opportunities, and then go for it. And during that time you read a lot? For sure. That's what I... If you are in a situation like that, spend your time, at least you can read a lot. Read a lot about successful people and if your passion is business, read a lot about business books and I did that. I I discovered uh, 
Warren Buffett, for instance. The first book I've summarized, my wife typed it for me. And even the latest one, Snowball, mm. a massive book, uh, to a certain extent, summarized that as well and had, had it typed. Okay, and you, you talk about reading business books, and so many people pick up these books and wait for this great light to come on. But it's about taking what you need out of those books. I mean, some books, yeah. you, you'll, you'll get something out of one or two good ideas. Some books change your life. I think it's if you do it, but if you sort of underline things and have it typed, then you sort of it stick with you a bit better than just read, read, read. If you try to summarize it or right. tell somebody in a short version what it is about, and it gives you a clear idea of what is special in life, how to look for an opportunity. You know, for instance, uh, PSG is a new South Africa company. Yeah. It started after 94. It shows you what opportunities there is, is in South Africa. Now, I'm getting bored if I sit with friends and they're just telling me how bad things are in South Africa, from crime to education and things, then I usually say, but if it's so bad, why don't you emigrate? There we go. Yanni Mouton, the executive, the non-executive chairman of the PSG Group. What a humble guy and three great uh, entrepreneurs tonight from last year. Yanni Mouton, Hassan Adams from Grand Parade Investments and Stephen Saad from Aspen Pharmacare.